0: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Hello everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillam, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Moisés Lino Isilva, who is the author of the book Minoritarian Liberalism: A Travesty Life in a Brazilian Favela, published by University of Chicago Press. Dr. Lino e. Silva, welcome
2: to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation.
1: Yeah, thank you for coming. And I'm really excited to talk about your book. And so just to begin, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your background and let you introduce yourself to the listeners. Your book follows people living in a Brazilian favela as they kind of forge these experiences of freedom. And so how did you come to write this book? Can you tell us about yourself and what got you interested in this topic?
2: Great. Um, well, you know, I'm an anthropologist um, and I did my master's and PhD in anthropology. But it's, I think it's interesting and telling that for my undergrad, I did a lot of political science too. And so I see in this book... Um, an argument that also interests political scientists when it comes to the discussion on liberalism, but the way that I approach the topic is not typically the way that a political scientist would do, but it's the way that an anthropologist would do, and by that I mean um, it's all the arguments are based on ethnographic research, and they're based on me spending years in this shanty Town. In Brazil and we call them favelas um, I moved to this one particular site in 2009 and the shantytown is one of the largest ones and it's called Rocinha in the city of Rio de Janeiro so when I got there to Rocinha I was actually doing my PhD in anthropology this book is based on my fieldwork that I did while I was doing my PhD. Um, And I'm Brazilian too. So that's another interesting, I think, point. Because um, when I was doing my research, that came up. That came up in terms of uh, people were curious about where I was coming from in Brazil. And I'm not from the city of Rio. And I am from the Brazilian Midwest. That is also part of the story behind the book because even before uh, studying political science or even before becoming an anthropologist, I was already concerned about inequalities in Brazil because I grew up with very strong, a, a very strong sense that inequality was a huge problem and still is a huge problem in the country. And I also felt some duty to um, try and do something in terms of what can I contribute uh, to that, um, to to make that better, to, to solve that problem, of course that the you know the more kind of you get older and the more you study, the more you realize that there there are no simple answers you know, right to the question of social inequality. But the book is a, it, it offers um, kind of reflections and some thoughts and arguments um, connected to this. Um, problem of social inequality in Brazil, and most of all connected to the urban scenes, right? So um, there's been inequality so bad in, in, in Brazilian large cities that there's been people making arguments saying that these are actually fractured cities that you have, you know, the so-called formal city on one side of the informal city or shanty towns on the other side. I hope the book shows the situation is not... Um, it's, it's not a dichotomy. There is a strong relationship between shanty Towns and the so-called formal city, or sometimes people would, you know, in shantytowns Towns would say call the so the, the, the formal city, they would say it's the asphalt. So they will call they would call the formal city the asphalt and the shanty town the hill. Um if if I use those um terms, I think now it's clear what I mean. But um yeah, so living there was, I started this research hoping that I would uh, be able to help in that discussion. And somehow I think the book does, but not perhaps not exactly the way I imagined when I started the research.
1: Yeah, thank you. And I think to this question, I guess, of inequality, you contribute the idea of minoritarian liberalism And I wanted to begin by asking you that, since that's the title of the book, and that's the idea kind of that you theorize throughout the book. And you understand liberalism as, um, quote, a set of ideas, desires, or practices in favor of freedom or liberty, and you distinguish between normative liberalism and minoritarian liberalism. And normative liberalism is what I said. It's defined as these ideas of freedom based on individualism, autonomy, and private property, and also maybe protection from the state. So I wondered if you could describe your idea of minoritarian liberalism and how you came to develop this concept.
2: Yeah, very good. Um, great way to see how you, you read. You're very right in your, in your points. Um, when I was talking about inequality, I was, you know, there are many forms under which inequality manifests. So you see, for example, um, that there are material differences between um, the shantytown and outside the shantytown. So people would sometimes, you know, wear different clothing or they would have uh, access to different types of service, even public services. So if you think that the state is a state for all Brazilians, you'd still see inequalities. In terms of what public services were provided to people in in, in the so-called uh, formal city, and what types of services people in shanty towns would have access to, but in my case, I got particularly puzzled um, when it came to the question of rights. So, what what rights do people um, have, or what rights are they entitled to when they live in shanty towns? And that's because in shanty towns, the state is not present in um, what you could call a regular fashion and some people have said actually that states are the state is absent from shantytowns some people would would put it in those terms i'm not quite sure i would go as far as to say there is no state in shanty towns because you know even the national state is still present um, but in a very irregular fashion, you could say. By that, I mean, yeah, you don't offer social services or social goods to the population in shanty towns, but you would see the state coming in with uh, the police force or at some points in Rio, uh, the police, or actually the state would deploy the military to come into shanty towns. And that's a form of state power. So you see that there is a relationship with the state it's just that it's not what you would expect um, according to the relationships between state, national state, and the population outside of Shanti towns. Uh, so when I thought that in terms of rights, the population in shanty towns had a different access to rights, and that's exactly as you said, that's a point that to me marks um, even relationships in terms of freedoms and liberties. So rights over freedom or rights over liberty, they are not the same in the Shantytown as they are outside. Now, when I was writing my research proposal and before doing field work, I assumed that this fact meant that people in Shanty towns had very limited, if any, access to rights over freedom and liberty. And because this, the national state is not present to guarantee those rights in Shantytowns, And what you do have in shanti Towns is another form of government, which is much more based on the power of drug lords. And to my mind, before the research, I thought that those drug lords were actually um, tyrants, right? That they were there and imposing their power by force and not really guaranteeing any freedom or any liberty. And um, here I say freedom and liberty uh, because in Portuguese, we only have one word for both. So I keep repeating freedoms and liberties in Portuguese, the language in Brazil that, you know, the, the research was done in Portuguese. Uh, we use the word liberdade to mean both freedom and liberty. So, yeah, so that's how I started it. And when I, I got to the town, and during the first weeks, I started to think that I was actually wrong in my assumption that somehow there were less freedoms and liberties or no freedoms and liberties in the shanty town. What I encountered were forms or modes of freedom that I wasn't very familiar with. So um, just to give you an example, um, the, the drug lords themselves, right? They established in shanty towns something they call the law of the hill, or law of the favela. So meanwhile, uh, outside the the Shantytown, you would have the law of order of the national state and in Shantytowns, the drug lords would have the law of the hill, which is something um, established by the drug lords, but also in negotiation with the population. Uh, What I didn't know was that, for example, in this particular Shantytown, and it might not be the same for all Shantytowns, there was a law of the hill that was meant to protect the liberties of the LGBTQ population, and I didn't discover this by looking at you know the constitution. Or there, there, there are no written kind of laws of the hill necessarily, but I experienced this as an anthropologist living with friends in Ashanti town and friends that were LGBTQ. Uh, by hanging out with those friends, at some point we, I was with a gay friend and myself being a gay man, we were bullied by a group of teenagers who told us very nasty things. And we were, you know, my instinct was to immediately ignore and pretend nothing happened and kind of keep moving. But my friend who was from the shanty Tan made a point of stopping and confronting the teenagers, the Shantytown teenagers that had said um, horrible things. Uh, I was very surprised and afraid, to be honest, afraid of what could happen. But what my friend said and told them was that, look, as far as I'm concerned, you should not do that because these are not the laws of the hill. These are not the laws of the Shantytown. You're not entitled to bully me as a gay person. And I thought some, you know, some fight would happen, but the teenagers, the, the group of, you know, young guys, they went really quiet. And in a sense, I realized that what, what my friend was saying had weight, right? That it actually had traction in the shantytown. He could do that. And in fact, my friend had told them, do you want me to report you to the traffickers, you know, for what you're doing? And if he would report the, the, the teenagers to the traffickers, there would be some punishment There could be punishment. And the laws of the hill included the whole apparatus of you know, um, kind of judging case by case and then deciding on the punishment. And sometimes the, the punishments were quite, quite harsh. And, and it could include, for example, capital um, penalty. So um, the guys went really quiet. But to me, what that showed was an example of a form of freedom uh, that L- LGBTQ people had in this shanty town, and that I did not imagine in advance before my field work. And to me, when I start thinking of this is one instance, but the, the book is about many different forms or modes of those um, freedoms and liberties that are not the normative ones. What I call the normative ones, you're right about the characteristics of individualism, um, the sense of um, state protection, but um, there is something more about normative liberalism is that most of those freedoms and liberties that come from the state are actually based on ideas of, um, you know, contractualism, um, some philosophical positions uh, regarding this idea that we, uh, the state operates because we give up on some of our rights and freedoms to the state, and then the state will protect us in exchange. So this contract between people and the state, imaginary somehow, but that is got manifested in, in our laws. Um, that is also part of what I call normative liberalism. This sense that we deal with freedom and liberty based on European philosophy, European political theory, of course, that the United States of America recently, um, they are, you know people are deeply invested in this discussion on liberalism. And in fact, it's a major value even for the American constitution. But originally, those ideas have a very clear um, kind of genealogy, and they relate very much to European philosophy and, and European political theory. So in opposition to that mode of understanding liberalism, I collect all these instances from my fieldwork, uh, as I gave an example just now, and I start to think of them as also a form of liberalism, but not the one that we already know, not the one that comes from this genealogy connecting Europe, United States. I start to think of um, these forms of liberty and freedom as minoritarian uh, modes of liberalism.
1: Yeah, that is really fascinating, and I I thought about um, the the work that you did in the in the shanty town or uh, Hosinia, and it seemed like a place that was really you know ripe or you know, th- like a, a great setting in a way to, to look at this idea of minoritarian liberalism. And so when I teach my students about favelas or shantytowns in Brazil, um, because I teach classes, of course, I'm an anthropologist as well. And so I teach classes about Brazil as well. And um, my students are always curious about day to day life in shantytowns or favelas. And sometimes I tell my students that, oh, life in a favela, or a shanty town in Brazil is, you know, is similar in that, you know, people get up every day, they Tend to go to work. They spend time with friends and family, etc. But there are some differences as well about the the space of the shanty town, and maybe specifically Hosinia that seem to make it ideal for your project. And I think you you might have touched on this as well. You talked about the laws in the shanty town um, and the difference between the asphalt and the hill. But I wondered if there was um, anything else you wanted to say about Hosinia. That you know seem to provide these conditions for minoritarian liberalism, or just life in the favela in general.
2: Right, that's a that's a very good way to put it. Life in Chantitans, I mean, they are not um, you know completely different from life in the asphalt. And I think that point is very important, right? We don't want to give a sense of exoticism here. That's not the question. Um, and for one reason, at least one is that there is a constant movement of people from Shantytowns to the asphalt all the time. Uh, Of course, that's much more accurate in terms of people from Shantytowns going to the asphalt, for example, to work uh, every day and coming back every day. And the opposite, people from the formal city coming to Shantytowns, that is less frequent, right? That is seen as more difficult. We can talk more about that, but there is, for sure, this constant flux, and um, um, so life in shanty towns is like you know, it's not this, um, it's not exotic in that sense. But there are differences, and it's very important that we acknowledge those differences and think about what those differences mean for people from Shantytowns. towns. And the differences, though, are. Um, can be understood in terms of um, the state treating favela dwellers in a different way, um, having, for example, uh, very aggressive state policies, um, killing a lot. I'm sorry, killing a lot of um, people in shanty towns when they come with a police force or the military, treating lives in shanty towns in a different way. That that is very clear. Um, but there are differences that are not only, um, that could, should not only be understood in a negative sense, right? People in shantytowns have created a form of life too that somehow works for them in, in many ways. And sometimes it's difficult for people to acknowledge that there are, um, there are forms of um, dealing with the difficulties that shantytown dwellers face that benefit people in shanty towns too. And, you know, the example of the LGBTQ population being protected, that is an example of that. Of course, that you could think, well, but isn't that, you know, the way that the drug lords are protecting the LGBTQ population, isn't that just kind of a mirror image or a reproduction of state oppression, national state um, oppression, the form that then, you know, the national state operates these drug lords are actually just reproducing them. Uh, I wouldn't be so uh, quick to make that assumption because as far as I understand, the relationships are different, right? The drug lords, they, they are a form of state, but not exactly in the same way that the national state operates. And by this, I mean, when you talk to people in shanty towns, They would say, well, yeah, the drug lords, they do have, you know, kind of guns and power and they are in charge of the territory. But, you know, I've seen those guys grow up. They were neighbors. They were the sons of my neighbors. I know I've known them since they were kids. There was a different connection with the drug lords. So and it's not to say that, you know, favela dwellers actually support drug dealing. Most of them don't. Most of them don't even like to talk to, to traffickers. But what the difference is, is that when the police comes and kicking doors and killing people, uh, th- that relation to the police force is not the same as the relation with the drug lords. So they know, for example, in shutty that the drug lords will not go around killing favela dwellers that the drug lords will not go around invading people's houses. And of course, I'm not saying that this system and and this political system in shanty towns is ideal. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that that there is a different form of um, relating to this power that somehow organizes life in shanty towns. And to me, one major difference is that drug lords are not interested in uh, um, imposing that model of state, right? The way that they deal with the population in towns they're not going to the asphalt, trying to colonize the asphalt and imposing imposing on the formal city the way they should. They think um, things should work, and that is also uh, an important distinction between. Um, normative liberalism, which has this universal pretension, right? It wants to be universal. It, it intends to be valid to everyone, for everyone. So it, 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 it has this colonizing ethos in normative liberalism. Whereas in minoritarian liberalism, I don't see that happening in that same way. So yeah, there are rights for um, LGBTQ people in the shantytown, but I don't see drug lords trying to impose that on others uh, you know beyond the, the the shantytown territory and I think that's an important distinction. Um in, in terms of um, you know more aspects of life and in, in, in the Shantytown and even how this um, how this research happened, right? I come from, as I said, outside of Shantytown. So I'm not um, from shanty towns and that also generated some conversation and and kind of interesting discussions while i was doing my field work and people will tell me that they were very used um, for example to researchers coming from abroad outside of brazil and then being interested in um, researching favelas and sometimes moving to favelas but brazilians as i said they usually avoid Moving from the asphalt to the shanty towns, and I was doing at the time my, my masters and my PhD. Later, uh, I did my PhD in the United Kingdom, and uh, in Scotland. And when I came to the shanty town to live, and people were trying to, you know, make sense of me, so they were saying, "So you're an anthropologist? Yes, yes. And you're gonna spend time in the shanty town." Is that right? And I would say, yeah, that's right. I'd, I'd, I'd like to spend time living here in the shanty town and not outside. And they would say, but you're Brazilian. And I would say, yeah, I'm Brazilian. And they would be shocked by the idea that a Brazilian person from the asphalt would actually want to spend time or live in the shanty town. That's very telling, I think, about, um, says a lot about, the way that Brazilian uh, asphalt dwellers and usually middle-class people think of towns and how much fear they have in relation to towns, But it was also very, I think, anthropology is very much about encounters, right? It's about relations and how different people come together and engage in a conversation that they can have you say that somehow um, Rocinha seemed to be a a good territory or a good space or a good place for that conversation. Uh, I didn't know that in advance, to be honest. I wasn't expecting it. But what Rocinha does have that's different from some other shantytowns, it's a more unified um, territory and also more unified, perhaps, um, a group, right? So that the, in power, when, it, when I said drug lords are in power and there are different factions of drug lords in Brazil, but Hussein, it's usually under one group and under one faction. And that is different from other shantytowns in Rio where um, the territory is a lot more um, divided. So in, in some ways, I think that probably helped, but in um, there is something about life in shanty towns in terms of acceptance of difference. So something my my friends would say in in Hossin is that well it's okay you know we're all different in a way. There are people here that are workers. There are people that are migrants from the northeast. There are there, there are people that do sex work, and you have anthropologists. So so it's okay. It, there is a. There is a diversity of people, of groups in Jocinha, and somehow it's part of our um, understanding that we need to learn how to deal with difference, right? That we need to live together in this one shanty town, accepting and dealing uh, with the fact that people are different. And that to me, again, indicates some form of thinking, uh, people's uh, liberties and freedoms when they have to accept um, diversity. Somehow diversity is established and it's a fact. And then people live together in that one territory and they have to deal with each other. Um, what's interesting is that when you think of the, the drug lords and their factions, uh, th- there are different slogans, right? There are motives for the drug factions. And for one of them, it's actually live and let live, so viva uh, deixe So in a way that you need to live your life and let other people live their lives too. And to me, that also indicates a special form or um, a particular way of understanding freedoms and liberties. So um, last last thing connected to your question and connected to this idea of the shanty town not being this exotic place. I'm not denying that normative liberalism also operates in shantytowns. So I'm not saying that the asphalt has normative liberalism and the shantytown only has minoritarian liberalism. That's not the case. The book makes the argument that even to think of a minoritarian form of liberalism, that form of um, of understanding freedoms and liberties is actually in dialogue with normative forms of understanding freedoms and liberties, right? So this is actually a relational experience that people who live in shanty towns, who have consistently been denied their rights, who have actually, you know, some some people have their life um, jeopardized by by normative understandings of freedom and liberty, and they relate to that um, fact in a way that produces uh, difference, in a way that produces... Um, other understandings of freedoms and liberties, and in a way that um, it makes for minoritarian modes of liberalism. Now, those minoritarian modes are not the only modes um, that exist in Shantytowns. As you said, most days of life in a Shantytown, you wouldn't have to worry about, for example, the police invasions and all the um, kind of war scenes that sometimes they do happen and you see them, right? You see them when you watch the news and, but if you think of movies, for example, uh, City of God, I don't know if people have seen the, that movie. It portrays life in shantytowns in a way that, you know, it's so extremely violent that it seems that every day of life in a sh- shantytown would be a war zone. And, I think that works well for the movie because it's almost like a Western style bang bang kind of genre of movie. But in daily life and shanty dance, yeah, there would be episodes of um, war and police invasion, what people call invasion, but not every day, not all the time. So there would be times in which you know that kind of uh, explicit violence would be manifested. And some other times, most of the time people were Going to work, going to the asphalt, coming back, watching TV, you know, eating with their friends, joking, you know. So uh, I think that's actually an advantage of doing what I proposed to my friends in the shanty town, which it was, yes, I'm Brazilian. Uh, I'm from the asphalt, but I would like to live here. And uh, my friends had told me that another possibility would be to uh, for me to stay in, in the asphalt, living in the asphalt and coming just to do interviews. And I thought that was a very interesting point from their perspective. But when you do that, you're you're not following daily life as it happens, right? You're not in the shanty town, hanging out with people as it happens. So most of my research was actually based on, you know, sharing time and spending time. I wasn't um, actually, I wasn't concerned with interviews for the many you know, first months that I spent in, in Rocinha, I wasn't necessarily doing interviews, for example. I was hanging out, I was spending time, and I was getting to know different people. And um, that's, in fact, how I met uh, Natasha Kellen, to whom I dedicate the book, and someone that's so important in the narrative arc of the book. I met her by chance. I met her because well, I, I was understanding.
1: Can I, can I ask you about the, the Natasha then? Oh, yeah, because that was going to be my next question. So I just wanted to jump in and, um, and ask you about her because the book is, you know, really centers on, you know, queer life or LGBTQ life in the favela. And I thought when I was reading it that a shantytown would seem like a really unlikely place for queer life um, in, in maybe in Brazil or in general. But I think, that's, that's kind of attuned by these different representations on television that we might have about queer life, which are generally middle class, if, if they even appear at all. Um, and so queer or, or LGBT favela residents uh, seem like kind of an unlikely site of freedom. But you really draw attention to your friend uh, who you were just talking about, Natasha Kellum uh, Butchen. Um, who is a travesti and her life experiences. um, And that kind of picks up on the subtitle of the book, A Travesti Life in a Brazilian Favela. And so I wondered um, if you could tell us then about your friend, Natasha, and uh, queer life and freedom in the favela.
2: Yeah, excellent, because that's exactly as you notice. So there's a transition from a title that's perhaps more theoretical as in minoritarian liberalism, But then the subtitle is exactly uh, Travesti Life in a Brazilian Favela. And I think it's very important to make that connection, how it's actually, as I was just talking about, it's actually daily life and it's um, sharing life with someone who self-identified as travesti in this Brazilian favela that made possible... Um, the discussion around minoritarian liberalism, right? So just to make sure that the the direction of the research was from uh, daily life to um, some more theoretical arguments. Now, Natasha is someone that I met um, by chance, as I said, nearby my house, and she mesmerized me. She was very enchanting in a way. Um, I was a bit puzzled and I had not spent time with someone self-identified as a travesti before. And perhaps we'll take some um, time here to discuss even the category travesti, which is not the same as transvestite in English. I think that's important. And I kind of learned this in a hard way because um, When I was doing my PhD, I also had a chance of spending a few months actually doing uh, work at um, UC Berkeley. And when I was there, I was using the word travesti very uh, liberally. Uh, And and at some point, somebody actually talked to me and said, look, perhaps to keep using the word travesti is not acceptable anymore because it doesn't really um, kind of pay respect to transgender lives or transsexual lives. And I found that a little bit hard to understand at the time, but then I realized that we were talking about different things, right? Different categories. Um, I, in the book, sometimes I refer to travestis using the official definition by the Brazilian National Association of Travestis and Transsexuals, it's called ANTRA. And just to give you a sense of what the definition is, um, Antra says, travestis are people who live a female gender construction opposite to the sex assigned at birth, along with a permanent female physical construction, and who identify in social, family, cultural, and interpersonal life through such an identity. So here you see that there is a very strong concern that to to be a travesti is not something temporary it's not cross-dressing for example right this is uh usually bodies that were declared male at birth and what they have is a female gender construction and a permanent one so um, the extent to which people actually want to have for example sex reassignment surgery That is very debatable. Um, Perhaps another very uh, famous book that most people will know when it comes to the topic of travesties is Tom Kulik's book called Exactly Travesti. And Mm -hmm. for Kulik at the time of his research, it was very clear that most travesties did not want to have sex reassignment. Actually, they understood themselves as being uh, gay males subjectively even though they had uh, a female gender expression. Uh, during my research, those certainties kind of um, got a little bit challenged in a way that, of course, Kulik's book was written many, many years ago, decades ago now. And, you know, the discussion will evolve and people will think differently. So I met some travestis that actually wanted to have sex reassignment surgery, but most of them didn't. And most of them were actually happy with their penis and they would say that it was an important part of their life or their, even their relationships with other people, that, uh, with men, that they would have a penis. Uh, Natasha, so Natasha uh, identified as a travesti, but even for her, that sense of permanence, what it means to be permanently uh, a female, um, to have a female gender expression in a permanent sense was also a little bit uh, more flexible than the official definition says. So Natasha liked, for example, at some point, I think I actually suggested, I asked her, wouldn't you want to have um, silicone um, implants um, for her breasts? And, and she'd say, no, no way, you're crazy. And I thought that, you know, most travestis would actually dream of having um, silicone implants. in you know, plastic surgery is very common in Brazil, as you might also know. And she explained, well, in fact, I don't want to have implants because I like the flexibility of some days um, displaying large boobs. Right. Um, and some days going out without almost no boobs. And I like in a way what she was saying is that I like to have this flexibility but also she liked the fact that people would look at her and kind of admire her changes and she would say you know I like to shock she would say something like this I like to shock, I like I like this thing that people look at me and they are confused somehow so then we started to balance the official definitions with different experiences and we see how um, You know, there is not one way of being a travesti either. We shouldn't homogenize uh, travesti lives, right? We shouldn't homogenize a category of people as it has been done in the past, I think, um, in some some work, um, some different uh, research research materials and books and articles. Um, So let's not do that. And what the book, the way I try to respond to this challenge of how do you not homogenized is to uh, be very particular in my ethnographic descriptions and in my narrative. Uh, I follow Natasha's life because she became such a close friend and her experiences were so um, actually connected to this topic of freedom and liberty in different ways. So, um, so far, we've been talking a lot about sexuality and and uh, gender issues, but the book is not all about that. You'll see that um, some chapters I discuss a lot, a um, lot more kind of the political scene and drug lords. In some chapters, yes, that we focus more on gender and sexuality, but you have, for example, a discussion about life in the Brazilian hinterlands, because Natasha was a migrant from uh, the Brazilian Northeast to the Chanty town. And that connection between the big cities in Brazil and the backlands, the hinterlands, uh, that's been very important, not only for the book and in terms of there's a whole chapter discussing this connection, but also even for the idea of favelas, right? The kind of the idea of how favelas came about in Brazil, it connects an event, uh, a rebellion that happened in the hinterlands of Bahia State, where I live right now, and. From, I'm speaking from Bahia, uh, there was a rebellion called the Canudos War. And that rebellion uh, was violently, violently violently, crushed by the state uh, with the help of people that came from Rio at the time because Rio was the capital for a while. Now it's Brasilia, but before it was Rio. And even before it was Salvador de Bahia, where I am right now. So Rio is the second capital. And people were dispatched right as soldiers to crush this rebellion, which wanted to declare independence from the state. And when they came back, they had been promised um, access to housing. And that promise didn't come through at the time in Rio. And as a protest, people that fought the war in Canudos in the hinterlands started to squat and occupy land as a right over housing. So you see how even historically, Uh, there is a connection between the Rio, the the big cities, and the hinterlands. And most migrants that come to Rocinha actually come from the Brazilian Northeast. So I had to follow that um, kind of part of Natasha's life to understand what's the relevance of migration. How is migration related to ideas of freedom and liberty, for example. Um, And then some of the chapters will talk about Uh, the more perhaps religious aspects. Um, Some chapters will talk about childhood and how we actually, you know, have this normative sense of liberty and freedom for all. But when it comes to children, we usually think that kids are not really fully entitled to freedom and liberty, which is interesting to me. And it says a lot um, to... um, there was a chapter that I discussed that because I met a group of kids that self-declared queer, but they were kids and and some of them were very young. And you started to see that what shocked people about that group wasn't just the fact that they were queer, but also the fact that they were children, kids. And if you think of um, the way we relate to so-called street children, for example, uh, part of the problem, I think we have with children that um, are not living at home or that are that are um, like on the streets is that somehow they have freedoms that we assume they shouldn't have. That, they, that somehow those children have too much freedom. That they should have parents to control them, or they should have the state controlling them. They should have some form of um, um, some institutional control and that they are too wild. So somehow I think um, our normative understanding of freedom and liberty sometimes uh, will not apply to children. And I'm not sure how much we realize that. But in the book, for those kids that I met, it was an important aspect of their lives that they were almost, they were not, you know, exactly street children. They had families, but they spent most of their time on the streets of um hanging out in Hossein and even outside of Hossein. So, um, yeah, just to give you a sense of of the book, the importance of Natasha Kellam, fundamental to the whole uh, narrative arc, as I said, um, someone told me after reading the book, you know, I liked a lot the way that you kind of like, there is a little bit of Natasha everywhere. There's like, you sprinkle Natasha Kellam all over the book. And uh, to me, it has been a a great honor to actually to tell uh, Natasha's uh, life story. This
0: episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, the book is uh, very deeply grounded in uh, her, both her story, Natasha's story, but also the stories of the people who you, you know really bring to life and describe in the book. And as you said, you focus on religion, you go to the Northeast, you go to um, Europe, I think Italy. The book is very um, expansive in looking at rights, right, and freedom that people are kind of eking out for themselves. And I wondered if you could talk about then your research methods as well, because you just mentioned how you didn't necessarily want to just go into and out of the, out of the shanty town or the favela you wanted to live there and you didn't just want to go in and do interviews and leave. You wanted to actually participate in kind of everyday life. And that really comes out in the book as well, where you can see your encounters and your, you know, your Walking around the favela, going to different places, um, and so I wondered if you could talk about that. How you, um, uh, any, anything about the the interactions? How you made friends with people, um, and how you you know recorded these interactions as you were going along.
2: Right. That's uh, yeah. It's very uh, interesting to think about how you know what research is possible. So sometimes we researchers talk about what we would like to do, but an important aspect of this is what is possible to do. Right. You don't want to be that overbearing, imposing person who will come and say, I'm going to do this and you have to put up with me. So it was part of that conversation, a dialogue with people in the shanty town that I wanted to live there. And they were asking why. And why wouldn't you do differently? You know, you could do this. So it was actually, it, it's part of a negotiation. So I think any research should also be based on a sense that, you know, people don't have to put up with a researcher. It's part of, it's a dialogue. And at some point, you know, I started to realize that people acknowledged that I was coming from a different background as a person from a middle-class background, a white, in the Shantitana was um, considered white and uh, also coming from the asphalt. But they also thought um, they had other considerations, such as, for example, you're also alone. So you're here by yourself. Where is your family? And why are you by yourself? And somehow I felt a lot of people um, connected with me because they felt sorry that somehow... They never thought that a life, an individualistic life, a life lived by oneself, should be ideal. And that somehow they wanted to connect with me because I came alone to the shanty town. And to be alone is one of the worst things that could happen to someone. So I really um, kind of felt that connection and uh, the way that people started to come to my house. And soon we were hanging out and doing things together. And... You know, at some point, uh, life was so intense in the shanty town that um, it was hard to find a moment to even take my field notes. And we know how important it is for anthropologists to take field notes. But what I did was to spend most of my time just living life with different people and following. I was actually not interviewing. What I was doing was waiting to see at you know, what point in daily life the topic of freedom will actually become important for people when will they talk about it when will they discuss it and whenever that happened i would of course you know perhaps pay more attention to what was going on but i had a little notebook in my pocket i clearly told people when i was starting my research that you know i was an anthropologist uh it's interesting to think how you know how many of those people actually remembered that initial introduction after you know in the second year, for example, of my research. But I was taking notes in this little notebook. And then at night, usually I would only come home very late because I was hanging out with people. Uh, but I would spend a lot of time uh, writing my, you know, my big field notes, which is like the, I had a, a bigger notebook that I would uh, kind of use my memories of the day, but also notes of dialogues or something that I had registered in my very small notebook that I kept in my pocket. I would develop those into the kind of full narrative of the, that particular day. Uh, and what I said about people connecting was so interesting because maybe even, you know, like uh, around midnight, I would get home and I would start to write or something and people would still come and pass by my house, even though they wouldn't want to stop because it was late. They would still say my name or call me to say, Hey, Moses. Hey, how are you? And and I would come to see who is this, and they had gone right. They were not there anymore. Uh, but I think it was important, even like I, you know, they're kind of checking: Are you okay? Are you there, Moses? Hi. They were just trying to have making that connection, and without that connection, the book wouldn't have been possible. I mean, many connections, and um, you know, I had a conversation with someone that read the book and was not an anthropologist and was a bit more skeptical about the way that anthropologists deal with themes of sexuality and gender, for example, Uh, including that problem that we already talked about of homogenizing kind of uh, travestis are like this, travestis are like that, kind of generalizing or sometimes even exoticizing. And I think something that came up from that conversation with this person more skeptical was that in a way what solves or helps to solve that problem is also this intimacy, right? So this this friendship. So more than just doing research, there was an element of um, relating with people based on of mutual interests or uh, friendship, basically. And when the relationship there, it's also, of course, as I said, I had told people that I was a researcher, but people, you know, usually you can be more than just one thing. Your relationship is not flat. You are a researcher to some extent, but you can also be a friend and you can also be a neighbor and you can, you know, go with people to their church or, you know, there, there are different relationships that it's, it's much more complex than we imagine. And I think that complexity helps a lot in not flattening people's lives themselves. So not flattening what travesties are like. And that was important to me. Um, part of my concern with fieldwork, I must also say, comes from doing grad school in the United Kingdom, where fieldwork is still highly regarded and valued. As a fundamental part of anthropological research, that, you know, the perhaps following the Malinowski kind of um, heritage, this idea of long, extended, uh, intense fieldwork as being fundamental for anthropological research. I got to the favela very much thinking that I should spend all my time there. And even my family, I said, I'm from Brazil. Uh, but from the Midwest, I wouldn't travel to visit them for a long time, you know, after starting fieldwork in Rio, I would tell them I cannot, I cannot just go and get out of the field, I'm doing fieldwork, so for a long time, I really took that to an extreme, and I think it helps, I hope it, um, as you said, I hope it shows in the narrative too.
1: Oh, definitely, it definitely does, and I liked how you talked about these different relationalities and friendship. In when I taught, when I teach ethnographic research methods, sometimes we brainstorm ideas of terms that we can use to refer to people who we're encountering um, in our research. You know how we can refer to them when we when we write about it, and students usually come up with different terms, like uh, you know, there's obviously the term informant, which you know, anthropologists have used, but they'll come up with the term, of course, like participant, interlocutor. I've had a student say like comrade, um, but I also liked your term friend, and I and that kind of added to that, to those terms that we can use. Um, a fascinating to
2: talk discussion, and I think it matters a lot.
1: Definitely, definitely, and I took note of your use of the term friend and your discussion of friendship just now, um, and so I think the the last question I'll ask you about the book is that, you know, you talk about how in the beginning of the book, you went looking for oppression in the favela, but you found freedom. And you make these reflections at the end of the book about this relationship between anthropology and liberation. And you call for us to understand the differences between a normative liberal anthropology and a minoritarian anthropology of liberation. And so I just wondered um, what, I guess, uh, if you had any reflections on this about the relationship between um, uh, kind of anthropology and and this idea of a minoritarian anthropology of liberation.
2: Yeah, sure. So, yeah, as I said, I first thought that my research, honestly, I thought my research would be ethnographically um, it would be about registering or witnessing the lack of freedoms and liberties in the life of shanty town dwellers. So I assumed, as we already discussed, because of this irregular relationship with the state and the lack of rights, that somehow there would be a lack of freedom and liberty. And I wanted to register and witness that that problem. And writing about that problem would also help call attention to it. Now, as you said, I also had to rethink that project. And I think that's a good sign, actually, when anthropologists have to rethink their projects. Uh, That means that you didn't know the answer in advance before fieldwork. And as I encountered more and more instances and modes of freedom and liberty, for example, and the kind of what you could call kind of religious aspects, I had not, Imagined, and it's not, it wasn't in my research proposal how important, for example, the liberation services were for the evangelicals in the town. So, the evangelical churches in Brazil, but also in the town, sometimes they have special days that were, you know, that they're reserved for liberation services and spiritual liberation in that sense. So, I did not anticipate that. And more complex than that, those services are directly related to Afro-Brazilian religions and so that uh, there is a kind of a connection between the two that I explore in a chapter of the book. Now, I had not thought about those um, forms of liberation because I think I wasn't used to them, because I didn't know them, because the way I used to think myself of freedom and liberty was very normative. I used to follow what I had learned in terms of rights and the constitution and how the state operates, guaranteeing some rights, and then I followed the the standard, the normative understanding of freedom and the, the more normative understanding of liberation, even though you know, even as a gay person, even as a as a person that has been excluded from normative liberalism. But the way that most of my middle-class friends deal with that question is to struggle for inclusion, right? Struggle to be included in normative liberalism. And that's what I think uh, a kind of a a liberal anthropology would do, right? You follow the values of normative liberalism. You kind of buy into the Eurocentric um, mode of liberalism that also comes from the U.S., you know as as we discussed it's very eurocentric and somehow you think that freedoms and liberties or liberalism should be exactly what we learned in political theory or we learned from the national state we learned from philosophy and we reproduce that those understandings of freedom and those understandings of liberty and to me that would be kind of the liberal anthropologist that goes to the fieldwork but is already um kind of uh, limited the understanding of what freedom and liberty could be um, sometimes is already limited by normative um, understandings and there is a difference to me between being that anthropologist that actually buys into the liberal values the what I've, I've been calling the normative liberal values and wants to kind of somehow include people in those, Uh, in in, in that mode of liberalism and someone that is actually still concerned with uh, freedom and liberty, but is more concerned with the liberation of um, forms of freedom and liberty. And by that, I mean not all forms of freedom and liberty that exist, and that's clear from my ethnography, not all of them follow the a normative recipe. Not all of them follow the Eurocentric model. Not all of them follow the you know, American constitution. And what do you do with those different forms of freedom and liberty? You could try to normalize them and you know f- fight for inclusion into a normative system, or we could do um, what, what I propose, which is what I propose in the book, to kind of challenge the normative uh, mode of liberalism to uh, destabilize our normative understanding of what liberalism is, to question, to decolonize uh, our Eurocentric understandings. And to my mind, when you do that, what you're also doing is fighting for the liberation of um, other forms of existence, right? So we are not trying to normalize um, experiences of freedom and liberty anymore, what we're trying to do is, in the book at least, what I propose is to theorize those liberties and freedoms that are not normative, and put them on a par, on a level, right, symmetrically, uh, in relation to those theories that come from philosophy and political theory that we already know. We theorize experiences from the shantytown, experiences of diversity, and you know, put them in this dialogue. Calling them minoritarian forms or modes of liberalism, but not shying away from the discussion of, um, um, the, of the liberal debate. But there is a difference between uh, entering the liberal debate from a perspective of a norm- normalizing perspective and entering the liberal debate by challenging, destabilizing, decolonizing, trying to rethink liberalism. Um, actually not letting um, the more consolidated forms of liberalism go unquestioned. But anthropology offers this opportunity to question liberalism, to ask if it could be um, expanded, if it could be changed, if it, if it could be um, something else than what it is right now, because under its normative kind of mode, we know that liberalism is very problematic. So we don't have to be the liberal anthropologists, but I think anthropologists need to have a strong commitment to liberation in different forms. I hope I hope that explains.
1: Yeah, and that's that's very well said. I like that. Have a commitment to liberation um, in different forms. That is uh, very important. And so uh, the final question, I guess, is about now that minoritarian liberalism is out in the world, um, what are you working on next? Do you have any upcoming projects on the horizon or um, anything you're working on now?
2: Yeah, thank you, actually. um, Yeah, I've been working on, um, as I said, I've been, I've moved to Salvador da Bahia and Salvador is the largest black city outside of Africa. in the book *Minoritarian Liberalism*, there is a chapter that I said I discuss um, Afro-Brazilian religions, and there is an encounter that I start to describe there that would actually lead me to my current project. Um, there is a moment that I go to uh, an umbanda, an Afro-Brazilian ritual, and uh, in which you know there there is a lot of um, kind of possession happening, and a spirit tells me that I would come to know a lot more about their religion, that I would, you know, it was something to the effect that I would know the truth of what I was seeing somehow. Well, I didn't, that day, nothing much happened. So I was a bit disappointed. I thought that something, you know, something would be disclosed to me that one day. But in fact, over time, I I came back to different Afro-Brazilian um, ceremonies and, and rituals, and uh, I had some readings, you know, the cow- people in Afro-Brazilian religion, sometimes they use cowries or seashells for fortune-telling divination, um, and I was part, I, I, I had some divination sessions, and um, the messages came saying that, yes, you know, you, you have a commitment to um, Candomblé, which is one of the Afro-Brazilian religions, and I kept following that, kind of tracing those, uh, those leads, kind of seeing where that would take me. And I ended up living in Salvador, which is the, kind of the capital. You know, sometimes people call Salvador uh, the Black Rome. And not only in reference to Catholicism, but mainly in reference to uh, the, it's the Rome for Afro-Brazilian religions, right? Um, it's the, the uh, it's the center of Afro Brazilian religions in Brazil. So I ended up living here, and I was initiated in Candomblé. So part of the new new research um, tells what happened after um, this book in terms of being initiated and taking part in not only in Candomblé, but I started to travel a lot to Nigeria because. The Yoruba were very important in establishing uh, Afro-Brazilian religions. The Yoruba people from Nigeria, so I kept I kept going to Nigeria. I was initiated in Nigeria, and so I tell this kind of transatlantic story. That's what I want to work on: telling those transatlantic stories that somehow make the debate around freedom and liberty more contemporary and actual rather than just focusing on past events. It's very important to talk about freedom and liberty connected to the horrors of slavery, for example. But we also need uh, to understand contemporarily what happens in terms of um, transatlantic relations and religion and um, connected to this bigger question of abolition and freedom. Uh, So um, currently, I've been trying to think about... uh, of those questions in in, uh, ethnographic terms. so using my experiences over the past let's say seven years i think already that i've you know i've been initiated in Candomblé and using those experiences to think questions of freedom and liberty of course following the distinction that i make of uh, minoritarian forms and normative forms so if you think that for example brazil was very late with um, abolition of slavery But even what we call abolition was very normative, right? In what sense was that abolition? In what sense did that happen, if not in a very normative sense of liberation? And I'm interested, as you know, in the minoritarian form. So I'm interested in other phenomena. And just to give you a very short example, and uh, 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 you know, researchers have discussed how even the very idea of spirit possession or the possession by divinities, Afro-Brazilian um, in Afro-Brazilian religions, it's very important in challenging this sense of self-governing individual. That somehow, you know, in normative liberalism, we have the right to own property, but we should also own ourselves as individuals and take control of ourselves. Uh, look after ourselves, this individualism and thinking about the self as property is very strong in normative liberalism. But what happens in Afro-Brazilian religions is that individuals or people are taken over by other forces, more than human forces, right? And in, that, in some sense, that moment of being um, taken challenges exactly the, the narrative of the self-possessed individual. And that has been discussed, but to explore that ethnographically and and the consequences of that to our understandings of freedom, liberty, um, in this context of Afro Brazilian Afro Brazilian religions and kind of cross cross Atlantic relations, I think uh, will be very interesting.
1: Yeah, so we will definitely look out for that, and that will be very interesting. I'm looking forward to that myself. Um, so I've been speaking with Dr. Moises Linoi e Silva, the author of the book Minoritarian Liberalism, A Travesti Life in a Brazilian Favela, published by the University of Chicago Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast.
2: Thank you very much. I really enjoyed um, this interview and uh, your questions were very thoughtful and I'm deeply, deeply thankful.